0: Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is radical scale, the people, processes, and technology that will ensure our buildings meet the dramatic needs of our future. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatsa Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Well, welcome everyone to another edition of Radio BX. I am joined today by Jamal Lewis, Director, Climate, Energy, and Health uh, at Green and Healthy Homes Initiative in Washington, DC. Jamal's role at GHHI allows him to focus on the intersection of energy efficiency and environmental justice, while also playing a central role in their efforts to reduce exposure to lead in communities across the nation. Uh, Outside of GHHI, Jamal's active in NewHAB, the Network for Energy, Water, and Health in Affordable Buildings, Uh, in IFA, the Energy Efficiency for All Coalition, and here in New York State uh, on our, our own state energy efficiency and housing advisory panel. Jamal's co-authored several papers on efficiency and energy justice. And although I had not met Jamal prior to our preparation for this episode, when we were building out our list of guests this year, he came highly recommended from several uh, completely separate sources. (laughs) Uh, So I'm delighted uh, to have Jamal with us today um, and really looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Jamal Lewis, welcome to Radio BX.
1: Thank you, Yata. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: So I wanna sort of start where you started in, in some ways. Um, you attended really stellar educational institutions. I'm pretty jealous <laughs> of the bio, the uh, first Penn and then Columbia. Um, and your subjects there were a mix of environmental justice and public health. And I'm, I'm curious amongst all the various areas you might've focused on with that educational background, how you came to choose the built environment as your focus.
1: Yeah. And actually, this story um, of how I came to this field, I think, begins a little bit before that. In high school, my favorite course was environmental science. (laughs) I'm from PG County, Maryland. Um, I went to a private school in D.C., and we would go to field trips to explore and do sampling at local rivers. And uh, <laughs> all of that was just r- really exciting for me. And so when I went off to college, I actually uh, played basketball uh, at Penn. So I was recruited to go there. And uh, there was one other person who majored in environmental science, but most of my, my teammates actually were, were communications majors. And in an effort to not rock the boat, I actually was gonna major in communication as well so that my schedule can be in alignment with every everybody else uh but then i i had somewhat of a, a, a really significant moment in my life where i actually got really sick at the end of my sophomore year and mm. uh, i had a staph infection that oh, wow. put me in the hospital for 19 days and on a ventilator for six days wow and fortunately i came i came out of that um but when i was in the hospital Uh, essentially unable to move, I said to myself, you know, I essentially, I thought of it as a second chance at at life. Um, So why, why would I major in something that I'm not actually that passionate about? So that's when I actually switched to environmental science. And uh, because of the, the residual effects um, of, you know, my, all my muscles being weak, I couldn't play my junior year. So Uh. I actually had a whole year Wow. To, to explore environmental science. And this brings me to the answer to your question. Um, I had a mentor at Penn that did a lot of work in Philadelphia and in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania uh, that was uh, working on lead poisoning. And one of my first introductions to, to the issue was going to the home of a young child in Lancaster and actually testing uh, their home for lead. And using an XRF machine, and so I did that. We were we were able to find the source, and the family was able to get help from the city. You know, they the parents sent me a a letter just thanking me and you know for <laughs> for alleviating the the source of harm for their child. And I think it was at that point that I realized yeah. just how much you know the home that we live in uh, can impact our health and well being. So I, yeah. I stuck with it. And I, in that next summer, I got an internship with GHHI. That's
0: incredible. Um, it's amazing to both have that mentor kind of helping you find that place, but then also have um, to feel that direct impact of your work uh, so uh, clearly and so early in your career seems like a real blessing. I think a lot of people that are involved in environmental issues um, and work for environmental organizations. A lot of times, the impacts feel sort of sort of distant from your desk. So it must have been so powerful to have that so early in your career. I know that. At GHHI, they they sort of started with a focus on on lead poisoning in homes, but have expanded their work significantly. I wonder if you could talk about that sort of evolution at GHHI from this sort of single issue organization to the sort of suite of environmental health hazards that that they and you address, and how you're kind of connecting the sort of issues of equity and environmental justice with those those uh, health
1: hazards. Absolutely. Um, I resonate with the mission of GHHI deeply and, you know, I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, just shout out my boss, uh, Ruthann Norton, who was the first employee of GHHI. GHHI was actually started as the Parents Against Lead in Baltimore. It started by nine Mm -hmm. parents who all lived on the same block, um, whose kids were all lead poisoned, And, you know, they just, they had enough um and and created this organization. Ruth Ann was the first employee and Incredible. you know, was was integral in you know, establishing Maryland uh, as the nation's leader in in policies and programs that help to address and alleviate lead poisoning. Uh, initially we were just doing inspections and remediation for lead, but um you know our, our contractors were coming back saying, you know, yeah, we're doing one thing. That's really great for this family, but we're still leaving them with mold, with yeah. pest issues, um, unable to afford their energy bills. And and so Ruth Ann took it upon uh herself and, and uh in the organization to try to find other ways to help. And and that's basically what established uh the Green and Healthy Homes initiative. Um we went from Parents Against Lead to the coalition to in chocolate lead poisoning, and then uh, the Green and Healthy Homes Initiative actually started as an initiative uh, that was funded by uh, the White House um, under President Obama, mm. um, but then became the name of our organization uh, because of the impact that uh, that this comprehensive, holistic approach can have on, on people.
0: Yeah, it's sort of, it's almost Dickensian to think about how many homes today are st- still, you know, children and adults expo- are exposed to lead. It's one of those issues that if if you don't live in one of those homes or, you know, if they're not your neighbors, you don't hear about it very much because um, right. it's such a slow moving catastrophe. It kind of doesn't, you know, make its way into the sort of 24 hour news cycle. Um, it's not breaking news. And um, but it's just a huge issue across the country, and still astonishing how many people suffer from it. Um, it's amazing to, to uh, hear about that sort of evolution of, of kind of collecting all the other issues, because um, they're all obviously related <laughs> to one another Absolutely. and in their, in their systemic sense and, and the reason that certain populations of our communities are the folks that, are, that bear the burden of, of, of all of these issues. Did the notion of energy efficiency uh, come into the frame like at the same time as these other things, mold and and other other asbestos and other stuff, or, or was that something that came later?
1: Yeah, it came around the same time. Um, so, yeah, to currently um, our main uh, main office that uh, most of our staff works out of, we do have remote locations uh, and remote staff across the country. Mm-hmm. But in Baltimore, we administer a a lead program still. We have an asthma program. We have an aging in place program and we we administer a portion of Maryland's weatherization assistance program. So it it came around the same time and actually the aging in place program is the newest Hmm. and we do our best to to align brain and coordinate all of those resources uh, and help uh, our clients to the best of our ability uh, using the resources that we have. Um, but yeah, it, it it came around the same time.
0: Yeah, you know the other issues, the health hazard issues are mostly about sort of remediation. Uh, but but with aging in place, what's the what's the focus there?
1: Yeah, I mean there's and actually this is one of the the uh, I had when I was in grad school and I, I had the opportunity to to work for GHHI. Um, I wrote a paper on the opportunity for healthcare to invest in. Uh, measures that can help older adults age in place so i mean it's Mm. things like grab bars uh rails um
0: yeah
1: high toilet seats uh when we talk about aging in place we also talk about comfort uh and and, of course uh, risks of falls and something that can increase the risk of someone falling is extreme temperatures so we also (laughs) um from our standpoint, that is also inclusive of measures that can help an older adult age in place.
0: It's really holistic, which is is great to hear. Yeah. What do you feel are the most effective ways of connecting efficiency and these other issues, these other environmental issues Efficiency being our kind of specific focus at BX, but they're as you as we were discussing, they're all related. What's the most effective way of connecting efficiency and and the, these issues of equity of energy justice? Is the focus on educating folks in the disadvantaged neighborhoods? Is it on new public policy and educating you know government and policy folks, or or is it a, a kind of both and?
1: Yeah, definitely, it's definitely a both and um, when we're looking at. Uh, the connection between efficiency and and health and housing, you know. For me, I, I come back to you know the the history of of racialized and discriminatory housing policy that sure. you know simultaneously clustered people that look like me, you know, African Americans and and other people of color in the same neighborhoods, and at the same time prevented investment in those areas. Uh, through uh, lack of access to loans um, which has led to uh, deferred maintenance and so when we're thinking about the homes that have the most uh, energy inefficient appliances that are the homes that have lead in them you know where there's uh, other health hazards it's they're all the same they're they're the same homes so you know when we're talking about that connection there is an educational component like yeah you know you know, I can reduce my own energy, but that's only gonna go so far if you know I'm I'm living in a, a you know, a nineteen sixty six home that where yeah. where there's air leaks all over the place and where my windows are you know maybe broken or malfunctioning, or if I have a boiler. I mean it's it's all the same. Yeah.
0: I mean it's sort of terrifying. You we could probably use the old redlining maps as a guide to where you should focus to find health hazards (laughs) in, uh, in homes all across the country still. Um, that's the sort of legacy of that and other, and other programs, you know, you work not just in DC, Maryland, Baltimore area. Um, are there cities, uh, that are doing a good job of connecting sort of equity and energy efficiency issues and sort of, if they are like what programs and initiatives you feel are kind of making that difference in those places?
1: Uh, There's a few areas, um, and I'll say that GHHI, um, you know, we've partnered with uh, over 60 cities across the country Mm. to put in place this align, braid, and coordinate approach. So where we're taking uh, lead hazard control funding from HUD, where we're also incorporating DOE weatherization assistance program funding, um, and or utility ratepayer funded programs. And in some cases, there's, there's asthma programs as well that... Are administered locally and so there there are a lot of cities that are that have embodied that approach and are doing well um, the one thing I'll, I'll plug which is a recent innovation is the HUD recently just released um, and named uh, five five jurisdictions for its first ever uh, lead uh, hazard control and doE weatherization assistance program coordination grant so it was uh, e- there are five jurisdictions that are that were awarded a million dollars each uh, in flexible resources to be able to coordinate um, lead hazard control with the cap agency that is administering the weatherization assistance program locally. And that's important because, you know, they, those that court type of coordination can mean a lot for a family um, that that may be living in a, an older Deteriorate at home, but it also is significant because the type of coordination that that can go a long way also costs. <laughs> so the fact right. that HUD <laughs> right. is is has taken it upon itself to to fund this type of pilot, I think, can set the stage for uh, deeper coordination among existing programs uh, later down the line in a way that can be tremendously helpful for. Uh, for families that that live in disadvantaged
0: communities. Yeah, it definitely feels like one of the big benefits of having a federal administration that at the very least is saying the right things about wanting to address these environmental justice issues uh, is not just funding individual programs or initiatives, but the fact that they seem to be taking a kind of holistic approach to it across all agencies um at all different levels seems really really important as opposed to just having a, like an office of environmental justice that right. is only in one agency or some you know it seems like they're taking the same way that ghhi took a kind of holistic approach to these health hazard issues they seem to be taking a more holistic approach at the federal level is is that program an indication to you that that they're really serious about these issues and and like, what other things specifically would you be looking for to, to kind of be reassured that they're that they're continu- they're going to continue to focus on
1: this? Yeah, I mean that definitely is an indication. Um, one of the things that uh, you know we preach quite a bit is the fact that there needs to be more resources for improving existing housing. I mean, yeah, a large part of the problem um, with Energy efficiency, or you know, decarbonization, which which is getting a lot of traction and attention now, is the fact that you know there are currently programs through DOE, the Department of Energy, through local utilities that aim to reduce energy uh, usage, and in some cases to uh, reduce energy bills um, or reduce emissions. There's not enough of yeah. that <laughs> right. for one. Right. Uh, but for two, when we're talking about equity, a lot of people can't access those resources because of the state that their home, or the state of their home. Yeah. And there's not enough resources, in an absolute sense, to help people to get their homes to the to the point where they can be then be weatherized or where they can then take advantage of, uh, you know, an electrification program. And yeah. so, I'm encouraged uh, at the fact that um, in the most recent omnibus bill uh, passed by Congress uh, the the Secretary of DOE was given additional powers now to create its own grant program to fund pre-weatherization measures mm. and that's also very significant that's and great. something that we could potentially see in New York as well yeah um, you know, there's there's a, a bill that you know in the that past in New York Senate that has to go through the the assembly that would also give NYSERDA similar powers to to fund pre-weatherization measures. So to do lead remediation, mold remediation, et cetera. Yeah. And they've made
0: pretty big commitments uh, in the CLCPA at the state level that that's right. a good percentage of that funding, I forget the number off the top of my head, will be directed to disadvantaged communities. Um, and uh, 40%. 40%. Yeah. There you go. I mean, that's a pretty big commitment um, and uh, and great to great to see. That's right. What's the next step for GHHI and sort of other organizations that, you know, I feel like in some ways we are, there's a lot of action, which is great in a lot of places in the country. We're still in a kind of educating the public stage of this connection between equity and efficiency. There's still a lot of people maybe outside our sector, our group of our community that's sort of working on these issues that, um, is, is kind of, you know, connecting, this history of systemic racism, um, structural racism, with these issues, these environmental issues, So there's still a lot of educating to be done. I'm sort of curious what you think the kind of next stage is of this of this work. Um, is it just raising awareness amongst um, more and more communities, or is there some other um, programs or policies that you'd like to see, you know, started in the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. First and foremost, you know, our next step has, is the step that GHHI was built off of, and that is eliminating childhood lead poisoning. I mean, that's an issue that shouldn't be, that shouldn't still be an issue. I mean, it's, it's, it's a yeah. disgrace that we're still dealing with that.
0: Yeah.
1: And in conjunction with that, we, you know, we still need more resources to address, um, deferred maintenance, uh, in both public and private housing. I mean, public housing, uh, is a whole issue in itself. But, but if we're talking about promoting and advancing equity and starting to provide restorative justice you know, to millions of communities and, and people, we have to start with giving people resources to alleviate that, the legacy of, of you know, redlining and other historic, historic dis- disinvestment that has occurred. And that, that plays a key role in the fight against climate change as well. Yeah. the you know you hear it i'm sure folks on you know who are tuning in today hear it that climate change is currently impacting the same folks who are disproportionately impacted by lead poisoning the same folks who who have high rates sure. of asthma um, sure and so you know we have to think about ways that we can target investments to improve the 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 housing stock so that homes can be can be more climate friendly can be more resilient And we also have to think about affordability as well. I mean, that's a key part of this conversation too. So I think first and foremost, more resources for health and safety to get people uh, to get these homes to a place where they can then benefit from efficiency and electrification programs. But then we also need wraparound services to make energy bills more affordable, to make housing more affordable so that after these upgrades, we don't just get uh, a, a massive Uh, displacement after it. So it's the layered issue. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. I mean, the terrible irony, of course, of climate change is that the people that are most impacted by it have contributed the least (laughs) to, to the, to the issues um, to, you know, at a basic level carbon emissions. Um, This has been great. I, I'm wondering sort of what's next for you in the near term, you know, what is, what is GHHI focusing on at a really specific level across this year, uh, you know, maybe how, you know, has COVID sort of, you know, I imagine a lot of your, you know, like in residence work was curtailed massively, uh, you know, are you, how are you recovering from that? And I'm curious what the next year looks like as we and your organization emerge from, from the lockdowns and, and everything else that uh, COVID has come with.
1: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It did curtail um the in-home services a bit, Um but, I'm I'm impressed uh, and continue to be with my colleagues to for continuing to serve um, even in the midst of, of the pandemic. I have to give a shout out to my colleagues who, even though you know con- the construction work was was put on hold, shifted gears and and were delivering meals to people in need. Um, we're providing wow. air conditioners, to, you know, to people um, last summer and, and maybe this summer as well. Um, but I, I am excited uh, about an upcoming. So, to to frame this, I, I said that we need more resources, and we're starting to see you know non traditional sources of funding coming into the the healthy homes space. Right. So, you know, I have other colleagues who are and have been working on opening up pathways for healthcare to invest uh, in existing housing through asthma programs or through aging in place programs. Mm. And I was pleased to find out that uh, GHI is launching a new partnership with ProMedica, which is a health system that serves a number of different cities, uh, you know, across the country. And this health system is going to be targeting investments in in existing housing and not just, you know, for lead. I think they're looking at um, other issues broader than that. So it's it's really innovative. It's really exciting. Um, I think you know, once that gets off the ground, we'll be able to, to add that to the list of resources that can then start to provide restorative justice to community. And I think to your point about education, it's important that the private sector, uh, that we we start to see real change coming from, coming from those folks as well, uh, to pay their fair share and to to also, um, to leverage what they have um, in order to help. I mean, it's, I think it's a group effort. Uh, It shouldn't be on the shoulders of any one person, but I think there's a lot of folks out there who want to and are willing to help. And we're seeing that with ProMedica.
0: Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, it's obviously true that we can't simply expect these communities for whom we've given the least opportunity, the fewest resources to pull themselves out of (laughs) that valley that we've created for them. We have to do that work um, uh, on their behalf uh, or a lot of it anyway. Um, while still empowering them, which I think is a challenging, you know, piece to, piece of this. It's great to hear about the ProMedica initiative because so much of uh, the healthcare system obviously is, is geared towards addressing, you know, uh, acute or chronic illnesses once they manifest, but not in preventative measures. And these right. are the definition of preventative measures and I have to—I don't know anything about Prometica, but I have to think that they're a kind of community-based um, organization or has some background like that. Because in my experience, the health organizations that are doing that kind of thing are organizations that are really embedded in communities.
1: They—I think this is quite unique in that it is one of the the bigger health systems, and wow. you know, have thought about you know ways that they can be helpful in reducing, uh, or addressing social determinants of health in a way that, oh, yeah. you know, I'm sure this will help their bottom line, but also it'll help, you know, real people in the, you know, in the process. And so yeah. it is unique in that way. And I'm, I'm grateful and I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll start to see other health systems, hospitals, um, and, and even other types of private, private investors, you know, the home depots who, uh, have invested in, in lead poisoning prevention in the past, like those types of companies to start to invest in, in housing and start to realize that they can play a big role in, in restorative justice that's needed in, in so many communities across the country.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Jamal, thank you so much for your time. This has been a, a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it, learning about all the work that you're doing. And I hope that we uh, get an, an opportunity to, to talk in person someday soon. I know you, uh, Jamal wanted to um, wanted to include some art in our conversation, and we were going to play some music, but we we realized with some research for copyright reasons <laughs> we weren't allowed to play any childish Gambino tunes That's right, <laughs> or anything. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have to save that for the next time we can get together. But I'm I'm definitely looking forward to that opportunity.
1: Thank you, Atza, and yeah, it's been s- such a pleasure to to chat with you and. Um, if anyone out there is is interested in learning more, I'm happy to connect. And, Great, and j- I'm just a huge fan of of the Building Energy Exchange, and um, wow, yeah, I, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to chat with you.
0: That's very kind. It was kind of you to take the time. We we are very grateful for you doing so, and uh, and there's it's a mutual admiration society. We're huge fans of GHHI's work, and and I hope maybe we'll get to work directly together uh, someday very soon. Let's definitely let's make keep an eye out for that. Yeah, let's make it happen. Jamal thank you very much thanks everyone for listening in today and uh, please do check out the calendar for future episodes of radio bx um, we'll uh, we'll see all of you soon thank you thanks again Jamal take care
1: thank you